Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Anagreta Hunter. I'm a cardiologist and Human Futures Fellow here at ANU, and I'm here today without Professor Sharon Bessel, who can't be with us this week because she's quite busy working interstate. I hope you're having fun wherever you are, Sharon, and we miss you. Policy Forum Pod, of course, is produced by PolicyForum.net as part of the Crawford School of Public Policy. The Crawford School is Asia-Pacific's leading graduate policy school. And I would remind all of our listeners, as usual, to check out our degree programs and short courses, including the Indigenous and Development Policy Specialisation, which is offered as part of the Master of Public Policy at crawford.edu.au slash study. I'd also like to acknowledge that today is our 200th episode of Policy Forum Pod, and I have to start by giving a shout out to all of those at ANU who have supported the development and growth of this podcast over the last few years. Particularly, let's shout out to Helen Sullivan, Quentin Grafton, and the Policy Forum team who work behind the scenes uh, relentlessly and, and often after hours, and to the entire Crawford School of Public Policy here at ANU. Thank you so much for your support. We'd really like to give special thanks to Martin Pierce, who, as regular listeners will know, has recently moved on from ANU. But Martin, you've left an enormous legacy through this podcast, through our sister show, Democracy Sausage with Mark Kenny, and through PolicyForum.net. We hope you're having fun in your new role and we miss you. So to today's podcast. At Policy Forum Pod, we do delight in speaking with those who tackle complex challenges of the 21st century. In these conversations, we frequently look to history for a guidance and learning. We often think about the context of contemporary events through recent history and remote history, and we learn from thinkers, leaders, and examples that can be up to thousands of years old. Over the last two episodes, however, we've been listening to Indigenous voices, and I think the context there is very important. Australia is home to the oldest system of knowledge and understanding, with Indigenous history demonstrating more than 60,000 years of continuous connection to country. We started our conversations with Virginia Marshall, speaking about country with a capital C, about Indigenous wellbeing and land, and about what many Indigenous thinkers see as an artificial separation of this idea of people and place, that the environment and people are connected. We followed this extraordinary conversation with Virginia by speaking to Patricia Anderson. 
Pat gave us uh, a very generous perspective about healing, about truth-telling, and uh, of course in her role as the co-chair of the Reconciliation Council, she explained the Uluru Statement from the Heart as a gift of love from First Nations people to all Australians, giving us a pathway towards deep reconciliation, an opportunity I really hope we take. Patricia Anderson also commented during that conversation briefly on her experience of education, both in her childhood growing up in the Northern Territory and her further roles in policy afterwards. And today we wanted to take this topic of learning and education further. We want to explore the role of education, of outcomes for Indigenous Australians and acknowledgement of history by the broader Australian community and the role that this plays in the wellbeing of Indigenous Australians. What can we as policymakers be doing to ensure that there's progress in this area and what, what advantages do we see moving forward? And we're honoured and delighted to welcome a very special guest for our discussion today. I'd like to introduce Professor Tony Dryce, a proud descendant of the Gamilaroi and Uwalia First Nations people of northwestern New South Wales and southwestern Queensland. Tony is Director of the ANU Centre for Aboriginal Economic Policy Research. He's a nationally and internationally recognised First Nations leader in policy evaluation and research, particularly in the field of education. Tony has a long-standing interest in this relationship between research, evaluation and policy, and he brings innovative ideas to this to the interface between social and economic research and the policy community. Welcome, Tony. It's wonderful to have you join me for today's discussion. Pleasure. Good morning. Good morning. So I thought we could kick off today's discussion by talking about Indigenous Australians in the Australian education system. How, can you give us a little overview about how uh, Indigenous Australians are faring in our education system across Australia at this point in time? It depends, I suppose, what metric you're looking at. Um, if you look at what seems to be the conventional measure of educational or academic progress, um, as you see through uh, frameworks such as Closing the Gap, um, those indicators point to a, a deficit, if you will, and that in itself is a concern. That is that First Nations people are a gap, are a gap waiting to close, are a deficit waiting to be overcome, and the general discourse about being behind. Um, so let's look at that from a number of perspectives. Certainly, a number of education indicators show very clearly that our young people and indeed our young adults and, and, and adults do suffer from educational disadvantage. If you look at scores such as those around NAPLAN, they indicate that uh, our young people are behind in uh, English literacy and mathematics. If you look at indicators such as early school leaving, uh, our young people are uh, at profound risk of educational disengagement and therefore are less likely to go on to university. Uh, on the plus side, vocational education and training numbers have been strong for a number of years, notwithstanding people can be enrolled in lower level programs. But let's have a look at 
a different lens of educational outcomes. And that is the gap in wider Australia's knowledge of, as you said in your preamble, the oldest continuing civilizations on earth. Uh, we have a gap in this country. And that gap is an understanding of and appreciation for the special uh, place that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have in this country. So when we talk about education, I've often talked over the years of looking at indigenous, indigenous education through four lenses. The first is education for First Nations people, and that goes to issues such as equity and access. Uh, another lens is education about First Nations people. So this is the idea that our Australian curriculum should reflect knowledges, ways of knowing, being, um, and becoming. The next lens is education with First Nations people, and that goes to the heart of reconciliation, you know, co-design, cooperation, co-production of education. That is the involvement of First Nations people. And finally, uh, a lens that I think too often gets overlooked education by First Nations people. So this is the idea of more of our people being teachers, more of our learning institutions, in fact, being run, managed, designed by First Nations people, and that we adopt both a long, lifelong view of education and a life-wide view of the education very much centering around STEM-type subjects and for economic reasons they make sense but learning's far deeper wider older than that that's a really powerful model and uh, i i uh, i've i think that that we can all learn from the idea that education is for about with and by first nations australian and that 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 f change of frame from language of disadvantage to language of empowerment is a really powerful one. So if we could flesh out some of the barriers around education perhaps a little further, Tony, could you tell us when and why do Indigenous Australians fall out of the education system? What are some of the barriers and what are the sorts of uh, successes you've seen in terms of, of re-engagement and empowerment? There are. Um, good news stories out there and there are enduring stories of um, marginalisation, educational marginalisation and um, disempowerment. So to come to the question when uh, are First Nations people are likely to disengage um, or not participate at levels that other Australians take for granted, We've seen in Australia and indeed across the world in educational thinking and indeed child development thinking that investing early is incredibly important. Um, so much of the brain develops in the early years of life and therefore investment in early childhood education is vital. Now, there have been good gains um, as measured by a number of indicators in the early childhood space, um, we've had we have seen an increase of 
First Nations children's and family um, families um, engaging in early childhood education. We have seen uh, an increase in the number of First Nations kindergartens, early childhood programs, etc. Um, so that's a good thing. Now, however, enrolling in programs and sustaining participation in them, active participation, and having Aboriginal parents feel safe about their child being in early childhood settings, there is a way to go in that regard. In primary education, there's been, you know, um, there is a good news story out there, and that is Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's levels of educational participation have improved radically over the last 50 years. There's no question because you had in other parts of Australia's recent colonial history active exclusion of First Nations people from education. With regard to primary school education, we know that our young people, you know, in, in key areas such as mathematics, um, English literacy, um, they can be doing well in some parts of Australia and not so well in other parts of Australia, including um, principally in remote areas. We know that educational outcomes very much um, are affected by where um, people live, whether they're Indigenous or non-Indigenous. The further you get away from the cities, the greater the gap becomes. Um, we know that across a number of education um, tests. Now, secondary schooling is the area undoubtedly of greatest risk for First Nations young people. Um, in some jurisdictions, as many as one in three First Nations youth vote with their feet and leave school. Now, on the flip side, we also know from data that where our youth do stay, when and where our youth do stay at school and do go on to university and graduate from university, then their employment outcomes are on par with their non-Indigenous peers, and, and, and that's a plus. However, of course, last year we had COVID hit and there are certain vulnerabilities um, uh, vulnerable people in the labour market now, um, women, uh, including casual workers, and most certainly including First Nations people. Tony, I'm just wondering, coming back to the curriculum structure and, and I, I guess the, the acknowledgement of um, the remarkable history and knowledge structures of First Nations people, what, what the national education strategy is for, for making sure that there is good understanding and teaching of this. Mm. When we were speaking with Pat Anderson uh, recently, she reflected on her experience in primary school yes. um, and the, the experience of listening to the story of colonisation and the way that that was presented to her as an Indigenous child uh, and that, that that undermined her faith in, in the, the conventional education system mm. and really, really, I imagine, is a point where, where disengagement and lack of trust can be, can be really uh, triggered. Have, are we doing a lot better with our educational curriculum at this stage? Well, firstly, I know precisely what Pat's talking about. You, you've got to remember that educational institutions, particularly schools and universities, 
were very active agents in what one might call the Great Colonial Project. Hmm. Universities were very active agents in questioning the very humanness of First Nations people, including, you know, ridiculous claims around um, brain size and what have you, Um, and that kind of dark Darwinian thinking that um, there were categories of human beings. Um, So equally in schools, I recall vividly um, my primary school years, and we never learnt about First Nations perspectives. We never had First Nations kind of guest speakers or elders come to the school. It was you learned about Captain Cook, learn about the great uh, kind of um, <clears throat> discoverers, um, and there was un- undoubtedly uh, a conscious bias against Indigenous perspectives in uh, learning experiences and curriculum. Now, <clears throat> more recently, that is changing. So when you had um, the reform educational reform, uh, various reforms that came out of um, Julia Gillard's time as Minister and, and later Prime Minister, you had, for better or worse, we, had, we um, moved to a national standardised um, testing regime and that is NAPLAN and it has its critics. Um, you had, but at the same time, you had uh, movement toward a, a standardised Australian curriculum um, that always made sense to me, particularly if people were moving in a state, much like, you know, Australian uh, curriculum in Australia historically was much like the train tracks. You know, you had different gauges across the country. Now, in those reform uh, years, it was decided that the Australian curriculum would have three overarching priority areas, and the, they were sustainability the Asia-Pacific and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander histories and cultures uh, across the curriculum. So that was a positive development. However, the Australian curriculum on paper is a long way from the practice in classrooms and there's little question that our schools, our principals and our teachers require further support in bringing those First Nations perspectives alive in the classroom. Uh, I personally argue there is an underinvestment in teaching and learning uh, resources that are uh, tailored and customised by First Nations people for Australian classrooms. Um, There's serious underinvestment there. And equally, there is quite a way to go in terms of getting our teachers both competent and competent in facilitating learning experiences that um, bring the First Nations uh, knowledge and cultural dimensions uh, to learning journeys. Mm, absolutely. Uh, there's such an extraordinary opportunity, I think, for, mm. for to, to see improvements from an Indigenous perspective. I'd, um, I'd, I'd and- probably add one more too. And that yeah. is, um, earlier you made the point about, and uh, you picked up on you know, Pat's comment about um, truth-telling. Um, personally, I feel that our schools need to be major actors 
Hmm. in that truth-telling journey. And that means uh, an Australian curriculum that is founded on a more holistic national story, hmm. including the ugly elements. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think think there would be real advantages for, for Australia as a community, wouldn't there, to hmm. the, the holistic view and the, the uh, celebration of our heritage. Tony, today is Closing the Gap Day. I wonder if you can comment on the significance of the new national agreement on closing the gap for, for education in this in this country. Look, I've got a couple of perspectives with regard to closing the gap. Um, personally, I don't believe it should be our overarching um, policy framework in First Nations affairs. And when I say this, um, when I say that, this is what I mean. Mm. Closing the gap immediately suggests a deficit. Mm. And I would like to see a reframing which goes more to uh, the unique and special status of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people by virtue of being the first people. So not only does that therefore open up the potential for equity thinking across a number of indicators, health, education, employment, others. Um, it isn't right that First Nations people are so disadvantaged across a number of those indicators. So I'm not arguing against the need for some sort of equity framework. But personally, I feel the closing the gap framework is insufficient and incomplete a policy framework when it is when our policy frameworks should be more around uh, holistic matters such as cultural affirmation about First Nations rights about um, how Australia in its national policy reflects our obligations under the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples how our policy frameworks ought to be more accommodating and um, responsive to long-standing First Nations quests around self-determination and empowerment at the local level. So for me, closing the gap <coughs> as a framework needs to be strengthened and, uh, and complemented and indeed extended through other policy framework um, dimensions, rights, you know, culture, uh, land ownership, uh, political settlement, um, empowerment, self-determination. Now, if, if we look at the national agreement um, that you referred to, the national agreement, probably the biggest um, strengths within it are the reform areas or reform priority areas that it articulates, including, from my perspective, a, a stronger focus on ground up as opposed to top down. Uh, there's a little question, I've said this on the forum before, that you know, ground up action always beats top down dreams. Excellent. Well, I think that's a great spot for us to take a quick break and listeners will be back in a few minutes. 
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Welcome back. We're still here with Tony Dryce. It, we've had a remarkable conversation about the intersection between education and Indigenous wellbeing in Australia and themes that have emerged from the conversations we had previously with Virginia Marshall and Pat Anderson are emerging again about the importance of acknowledgement of the colonial experience and uh, a better and much richer appreciation of Australia's history and the advantages that has for our Indigenous population and for Australia as a nation. I'm really struck by the framing of advantage and and positive uh, engagement with uh, an Indigenous First Nations perspective as opposed to the framing of negativity around closing the gap. And, And, Tony, that's one of the things I'll certainly be taking away from our conversation today. Last week was the 13th anniversary of the apology to the Stolen Generations that was delivered by then Prime Minister Kevin Rudd. It was a moment when the Australian government faced up to some of the country's recent history. Do you think this willingness to address the past has progressed since then? I think there's been some ups and downs in that um, post-apology era. I recall the apology itself... um, it was one of those moments, you know, I hear my parents say they can um, remember they were where they were when, you know, the news of the moon landing occurred or there are those who remember where they were. John Kennedy was assassinated. There's these, these big seminal moments um, that kind of get carved into one's um, memory and I recall vividly where I was and, and the the atmosphere. I was in Taree and um, I was a long way from Canberra where the apology was delivered, but um, I remember the energy and the atmosphere at uh, around the television as we watched it there. And I, when I, I saw the news that night, I, I, I got us the strong sense of what it must have felt like in Canberra and indeed uh, in, um, in communities right across Australia. And there was, it was kind of a, an electric atmosphere. Um, you know, that's not to, for a moment, um, overlook the deep sensitivity in the uh, occasion at, at, um, and what it represented. It was an admission of very, very poor 
um, and, you know, kind of shocking practices state-sponsored and owned um, in post-colonial Australia. So, but nonetheless, the, the apology itself represented something um, both sad and hopeful. And that is after many years of um, the former Prime Minister Ron Howard actively resisting uh, the, uh, the opportunity to provide an apology to stolen generations uh, and the kind of ugly cultural wars that circulating around that whole debate. What that overlooked was, you know, these practices weren't that long ago and you had survivors, as we still do, Mm. uh, of stolen generation regimes who are still here Mm. and want their story told. So to come back to the question, there was, I think, this major boost to the um, the sense of hope. Then I personally felt that there was a that kind of energy and that positive, you know, electric atmosphere to create better outcomes in this country lost its way, um, and we had. What I, what I personally observed was we kind of, as a nation, took, um, took the energy away from the space when we should have built on it. Hmm. There was a momentum and I think it, it lost momentum. It was like a snowball that kind of got fried in the heat um, and so it couldn't gather momentum. And we need to rediscover that. Um, now, the closest thing I see to that is if we get the developments right around the voice. And as Pat articulated, being one of the principal authors of that kind of process, and when you read the Uluru Statement, you know, it's, a, it's not only a powerful political piece, but it's a, it's a piece of natural, uh, of, of bigger pardon, of national poetry. Hmm. Uh, they're beautiful words. They're words that can help um, <clears throat> point our country in a direction that we desperately need it to be pointed toward. And they're, between, they're around national healing, around truth, around um, a sense of collective uh, endeavour into the future, about, around respect, uh, around honouring the special place of First Nations people. And we need our political and other parts of our leadership to speak to that and speak up for it. Um, um, I'm concerned that too is kind of losing its momentum. It has to be a voice to the parliament. It has to be. It can't mm. be. You can't live or die by the the whim of the government executive of the day. We've seen that before. You know, ATSIC being abolished at the stroke of a pen. Um, we need something more enduring, um, something um, that can stand and be there and stand the test of time because what we do in this country 
the peril of First Nations people, we chop and change our institutions almost on a weekly basis and we need some enduring legacies and institutions to carry this important work forward. We need a structure for the next 60,000 years. Right. Yeah. Right, which, um, which, which uh, you know, embraces the best um, kind of knowledge systems around governance and... Um, and around partnership and around um, mm. social capital that we can muster. And I think that is a, it's a really interesting perspective. As I said at the beginning, I, I know when we're thinking about complicated problems, we're often exploring what happened 100 or a 1,000 years ago. We might be looking at, at uh, old theories of political um, thought. Mm. But, but recognising a culture which is so much older than that and so much so deeply ingrained in the continent on which we are living um, is so empowering for the prospect of a, a better Australian future. Do you think within our broader Australian community there is a reticence to acknowledge and confront our past or do you think that that is shifting? There's what do you there's, think about the truth-telling process? Yeah, there's unquestionably a shift. Um, unquestionably, I, you know, I recall being a child and I recall the kind of, um, uh, the sorts of conversations that were often being had about our people, including within our community where, you know, um, you know, it was too often a talking down um, of ourselves, um, and you know that's a direct result of um, you like uh, in inverted commas the success of the colonisation process. Um, but I also recall as a child, you know, non-indigenous perspectives um, of our people, and I think we've come quite away from that. Um, and I do have a, de- a, a, a good, healthy degree of optimism when I see and now I hear my children speak and their friends speak, and it's a different language to when I grew up um, and how adults um, spoke about people. So, I mean, there are a couple of you know, personal and anecdotal reflections. What we do yeah. see, there's no question, um, and there are a range of data that go to this, there have been attitudes and some enlightening um, amongst the kind of broader uh, uh, Australian population. And you would hope that was the case. I mean, the Council for Aboriginal Reconciliation was created 31 years ago. Um, there's been a reconciliation process um, three decades in the making. So you would ha- hope um, some of that... Um, some of the initiatives and leadership that came out of that have had some effect. And, you know, there are <clears throat> um, my colleagues at Taper um, have put together a, a report looking at, for example, Australian <clears throat> people's levels of likely support for a voice. And quite across a range of surveys, there is a very encouraging um, indication that if bipartisanship um, comes into play um, and particularly if the conservative side of politics uh, champions the concept of, of 
calls to the parliament, then it'll get up. Mm. Um, and there have been a number of surveys that point to that. Um, so it's not like it's not like the Australian people are sitting back and we saw with the um, same-sex marriage um, mm. oversight that um, you know there is progression and progressive thinking in Australia. We're not the 1960s. Um, there is an enlightenment around certain social issues, and this being one of them, and, and therefore with the sort of you know kind of collective joined up. Um, ideally bipartisan um, support, um, then I think Australians will, will will vote very strongly for a case of yes. Absolutely. And I, I think the two accessible examples at the moment are the, the changes in, in the general population engagement with the 26th of January and, and the discomfort mm. and disquiet that's felt by, yeah. I think, a wide range of the community now. And the other maybe more positive perspective is is on um, Indigenous fire management um, and land management mm-hmm. that really emerged from the, the Black Summer experience and the, the conversation around um, Indigenous knowledge of land and land management. Yep. Um, and it's, I think there's a celebration that comes with that or at least a recognition of the importance of Indigenous knowledge uh, which, which will reframe away from a disadvantaged framework towards uh, an understanding of the, the significance advantage of celebrating, acknowledging and empowering uh, Indigenous and First Nations voices. Mm. But political and policy leadership still is problematic in this area. What would you like to see done? How how can we encourage better politics around this? There's unquestionably a need to move away from seeing First Nations peoples and our causes as being pawns on a political chessboard. We have to get away from that. Um, There are certain things you would hope in our national life that are in fact beyond politics and the daily grind of politics. And I would suggest that the, the proper elevation of First Nations interests, probably number one in that queue, uh, this ongoing debate around culture wars and history wars where one either takes a black armband view or a white blindfold view um, has to come to an end. Mm. Um, remember there are people who are at the end of all of this. It's not just theory or ideology or political preferences. It's people. And I would have thought and hoped that a ownership of this continent, who knows how old, 60,000 strikes me as probably conservative. Hmm. Some reports are at 100,000. Yep. If you listen to First Nations people, we were born of the land. Yep. So that strikes me as demanding a special elevation. Hmm. So one thing we could do to depoliticise this whole tension that is around the voice, et cetera, is to take it solely out of political arms. So at the moment you're seeing design work done within government 
it strikes me that we could be a lot more creative in in creating processes and institutions that aren't kind of designed and run out of Canberra. Hmm. Perhaps that are community centred. Right. So it 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 uh, is community centred, and the onus isn't just on First Nations communities. You know, there is. I, I, I go back to an earlier point I made about the kind of optimism I have when I hear young people. It just strikes me that you could have so much design work and thinking done in all sorts of institutions, schools, uh, NGO sector, uh, the, the private and industry sector. Remember some of the biggest companies in Australia, their CEOs wrote uh, an open letter, an open statement supporting a voice to the parliament. Absolutely. Mm. Um, I think it's we, we could talk for quite a lot longer around this. Education is at the centre of this reconciliation process and truth-telling. And so the final question I, I wanted to touch on today was that the one piece of advice that you'd give to policymakers about education and its importance for the well-being of Indigenous Australians and, and I think probably broadly for the for the future of our country. Mm. Look, education investment in education is the single smartest investment a country and its government can make, um, hands down. Um, it is. There is ample evidence to show that you know educated societies, are those who adopt um, really respectful uh, cultures for learning. Do well. Uh, not only the Nordic countries, but recently countries in um, the Asia Pacific. Um, Singapore comes to mind, Korea. Um, so it's a very, very smart public investment. Now, in our country, not only is it a smart investment potentially for economic reasons, but indeed for social and cultural reasons, we want education properly invested in so that all Australians can get some exposure to and, and benefit from First Nations knowledge and, and culture and access to our people. Uh, and it strikes me that our education institutions are, um, you know, the kind of um, the, the prime place for those exchanges between peoples to happen. Uh, so that means investing from kindergarten right through to, you know, learning clubs for lifelong learning clubs for older people. Um, I've long been an advocate of both lifelong and life-wide learning. Um, I'm a concern that we're narrowing the scope of learning to just STEM and literacy and numeracy. Learning's far bigger than that. Mm. Um, also, to come back to the point about the very strong correlation between learning societies and those societies that enjoy uh, higher levels of well-being. Um, one thing that our learning institutions can do in this country in the First Nations space is be agents for truth and to be agents for healing and exchange and dialogue. And... Uh, 
Australia at this point isn't, in my view, as well enough as it could be because, until we have that stronger bridge between uh, First Nations peoples, our cultures and histories and wider Australia. Absolutely. It's, it's our future, I think, depends on a de- deep acknowledgement of our past. Right. Tony, thank you so much for the conversation today. It's been very generous of you to give us this time and your perspective. I've learned a tremendous amount and thank you so much for joining us. I, I hope we speak to you again later this year. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So, listeners, that was the most extraordinary conversation with Tony Drice. It was, again, a generous and inclusive conversation offering us the perspective of a First Nation voice and drawing on themes that have emerged through our previous podcasts, the themes of acknowledgement of the colonial history of Australia, acknowledging uh, and truth-telling through the processes that have occurred that have ingrained uh, some of the Indigenous disadvantage. And uh, uh, the importance of truth-telling emerges again as, as a major theme. But I also was really struck by Tony's framing of moving from a model of disadvantage and closure of this gap, which of course is important, to a model of empowerment and celebration, of recognising the value of Indigenous knowledge, of Indigenous culture, of working with our Indigenous population, of celebration of what is the oldest system of continuous knowledge in the world. So it's an extraordinary opportunity, I think, at this time in Australia as we we define the years ahead to embrace uh, a First Nations voice and to do that constitutionally through the mechanisms that were discussed with Pat Anderson, uh, and to to see that influence, I think, elements of Australian life across the spectrum. Thank you, listeners, for joining us on our 200th episode of Policy Forum Pod. The Policy Forum Pod crew is so proud to have continued this process over the last few years, and we're very much looking forward to the next 200 episodes. Please remember to reach out to us. We're always interested to hear your thoughts on how our podcast is received. You can see us or engage with us on Twitter with at APPS Policy Forum, or you can email us directly at podcast at policyforum.net. One of the best ways to engage with us is to join our Facebook group. And all you need to do is to type Policy Forum Pod into the search bar and join that online discussion. Please continue to listen through whichever policy podcast forum you use, whether it's Acast or Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favourite podcasts. And listeners, if you have an opportunity to leave us a review or a rating, we'd be very grateful. Thank you again for listening. We will be back next week with another episode. I think we will have one further episode on Indigenous wellbeing before celebrating a a women's event in that first week of March. So thank you so much, and I'm looking forward to having Sharon Bessel with us back in the studio next week. I hope you're having fun interstate, Sharon. Thanks again and goodbye. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs> 